We're reading God's Word this morning, starting from John chapter 7, verse 55, and going through to chapter 8, verse 11. Then each went to his own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. If you're an art student, any art students? Don't, don't be embarrassed. No art students. Um, good, because then I, you won't notice if I mispronounce this guy's name. But August Rodin lived 19, uh, 1840 to 1917, is a famous French sculptor. Um, you might know him because of his famous sculpture called The Thinker. There's a picture of it, voter. There we go. Do you, do you know that, that statue? Um, or the next one is The Kiss. You might have seen The Kiss. Um, that's Rodin. But the one that I want to show you this morning is called Eve. The next one. I don't know how clearly you can see it. Can I just say that our projector is dying. It'll cost us 120,000 rand to fix it. If anybody feels the Spirit of God <laughs> saying to them that they would like to be involved in that project, I'd love to hear from you afterwards. Eve is one of his most celebrated works. He did it in 1881. It's an incomplete sculpture uh, because the model that he used turned out to be pregnant and couldn't pose for him for very long. And so he left it as is. But it is a depiction of Eve just after she had sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit. And I don't know if you can see it from that angle. But um, if you take a closer look, and you might want to look it up for yourself afterwards, you can actually see that he's captured shame very well, um, as artists are prone to do. He, he can, he, he's captured her shame Today's story is a story about shame, but it's also a story about hypocrisy, that cousin of shame. Ever since the Garden of Eden, shame has been part of being human. All of us uh, have shame in our hearts. It's a big issue in our world. I think shame is different to embarrassment. Embarrassment is normally short-lived and often experienced by all of us in various circumstances. But shame is deeper than embarrassment. 
because shame has got the power to attach itself to the core of our identity, and it can last a lifetime and touch everything in our lives. It can affect every relationship. Shame says, because of what you have done, because of what has been done to you, because of what you have been associated with, you are unacceptable, unclean, and disgraced. The shamed person feels worthless, expects rejection, and needs cleansing, love, and acceptance. I wonder if I'm speaking to somebody this morning who has experienced shame or is experiencing shame. Closely related to shame is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, another big problem in our world today, is a covering up. Uh, in Greek, the word for hypocrisy comes from the world of drama and acting, and it means the wearing of a mask. Hypocrisy has a public appearance that is one thing, but masks an inner life that tells a different story. Uh, Julian Lennon said that his dad was a hypocrite. He has a quote from Julian Lennon about John Lennon. Dad could talk about peace and love out loud to the world, but he could never show it to the people who supposedly meant the most to him, his wife and son. How can you talk about peace and love and have a family in bits and pieces? No communication, adultery, divorce. You can't do it, not if you're being true and honest with yourself. End quote. Try listening to Lennon's song, Imagine Now, and see how you feel about it. He was a hypocrite, according to his own son. And this story touches both of, both of those things, shame and hypocrisy, and it's going to say something to all of us this morning. For all of us have shame that we carry with us, and all of us are prone, are we not, to hypocrisy. And so let's really open our hearts to what the Lord has to say to us in this wonderful story. Now, there's a problem with the story, which I'm sure wasn't missed on you, especially if you have your own Bible in front of you. It wouldn't have been reflected on the screen. But uh, you'll see that um, most English translations carry a little disclaimer about this story just before chapter 8, which says the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have this story in the Bible. And so it's not part of John's original gospel, not found in the earliest manuscripts. And scholars have pointed out that even the language is different to John's style, to his usual style. Not only that, but you could go, you could jump straight from chapter 7, verse 52 to chapter 8, verse 12, and it makes sense. You don't need this insertion, verses 1 to 11 of chapter 8. Um, we mustn't let that throw us, friends. You know, um, there are 40 sentences that are disputed in the New Testament, which is very, very low in comparison to other documents of antiquity. It's almost nothing. There's nothing to worry about. There is wide agreement that this passage is authentic. It did actually take place. The problem is it's in the wrong place. They don't know where to put it. So it's not that it never happened and it was a made-up story. It has to do more with the location of where it should be in the Bible. And scholars just aren't too sure where to put it. And so they put it here. But of course, we can see that it is entirely consistent with Jesus 
when he stands against hypocrites. It's entirely consistent with how Jesus treats women, and it's entirely consistent with Jesus' message of mercy and grace. So I don't think we need to doubt that it is the word of God. The only question is, does it come here in John's gospel? And I would suggest to you that that is a relatively unimportant question. Now we know from the context, as we saw last week, that we are in the last day of an eight-day Jewish festival. In that uh, festival, Jesus, in verse 37 of chapter 7, Bryn showed us last week if you were here, he offered thirsty people a drink from streams of living water. And in chapter 8 and verse 2, Jesus has the first opportunity to teach people after the festival, and these thirsty people come to listen to his words. And so he sits down, which you know is the position of a rabbi, and before long, as he's teaching, there's a big interruption in the middle of the lesson. Um, Rabbis were often interrupted when they were speaking and preaching and teaching in public because uh, it was the task of a rabbi to solve legal and moral problems presented to them. And so it wasn't unusual for the lesson to be interrupted. But I want you to notice something about those who are doing the interruption. Their motive is laid bare to us in verse 6. Did you notice? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. That's their motive. They are not honest question askers. They are trying to catch Jesus and put him in a corner. In fact, this is consistent with what we've seen right throughout chapter 7. And I want to just run through these verses that will be on the screen quickly. Chapter 7 and verse 1, look at what it says. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He didn't want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were there looking for a way to kill him. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? And verse 25, at that point some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? So right throughout chapter 7, there is this shadow that falls on Jesus from his opponents. And we know what their motive is. They're trying to catch him. Ultimately, they are trying to kill him. And so in verse 4 of our passage, chapter 8, the throwdown comes. What do you say? They said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? There you can hear the hypocrisy. And so Jesus deals with them, with hypocrites first, and that's my first heading this morning, Jesus and hypocrisy, verses 3 to 6. <clears throat> What's missing in the story? Did you, did you notice? Who's missing? Where's the man? Isn't that interesting? Do you know, in the book of Moses, uh, in the books of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 22, if you were caught in adultery, the man was required to appear too. He was not spared judgment. There was total equality when it came to the judgment against sin in God's community. So it shows something about those who bring the woman, that they're not actually concerned about the law of Moses. They're not actually concerned about adultery 
or cleaning up Jerusalem, you know. They, all they are out to do is really to corner Jesus with their motive being made clear in verse 6. They've set a cunning trap uh, in order to have a basis to accuse Jesus. And so just imagine being the woman or imagine watching it. Um, I reckon that would be bad enough. Um, I just want to tell you a story from America at this point. Have you, who's been to Times Square? Have you been to Times Square? Do you know, Times Square is, the, is really the center of the universe. It's the most extraordinary place. You could sit there for three days and not see the same thing twice. In Times Square, there is a woman who walks around who's in her 70s, and all she's wearing are cowboy boots, a cowboy hat, a pair of panties, and a guitar. In her 70s. And she's walking around, and she'll sing for money. And you know, nobody bats an eyelid. Because you've seen everything in Times Square. It's shameless. But imagine an ancient society like the one that Jesus was in. A society based on shame and honor. And you have a half-dressed woman in her nightgown being pulled out in the morning of her bed and thrown in front of Jesus in the sight of all of these men. Imagine the shame and the horror of being that woman or of seeing that situation. And so they brutally haul her in front of Jesus. Maybe that had her under surveillance. Maybe it's a setup. We know their motive is to catch Jesus, but they seem very glad and very self-satisfied to have caught her in the midst of her sin. And in verse 5, they put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. Moses says this, what do you say? And it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a minefield because remember that Jerusalem is occupied by the Romans and under Roman law, the Jews weren't allowed to stone anybody for adultery. In fact, they weren't allowed to perform capital punishment at all. And so if Jesus says, obey Moses, it would have set him on a collision course with Rome um, on the other hand, if he says, don't worry about the law of Moses, obey Rome, then it would confirm that Jesus was a lawbreaker come to destroy the traditions and the Mosaic law, and he couldn't be the Messiah. Either way, whatever he answers, would have, uh, had, they would have had a basis to accuse him. Very clever. Like all hypocrites, they've placed themselves in the position of judge and jury, but Jesus magnificently and effortlessly exposes the cancer of religious hypocrisy. Notice that in verse 6, from verse 6 to 9, they now get caught, get trapped by Jesus. For in the presence of Jesus, hypocrites are on dangerous ground because Jesus knows everything. He sees everything. Next week we're going to look at verse 12, which says Jesus is the light of the world, that great famous statement. He can see right through you. He brings light into the dark corners of your heart. He cuts through the veil. He exposes us for who we are. Jesus always knows what's going on with us. Nothing is hidden from him. I wonder if that's your view of Jesus. He knows what you did yesterday. He knows what you've done in the past. You can't hide, for he is the light of the world, and he brings light where there is darkness.
is a story told about Arthur Conan Doyle, the famous author of Sherlock Holmes, who wrote to... He was apparently quite a, a practical joker in his life. And he wrote to 12 of the most respectable men in his generation. He sent them each a telegram which said, Flee! All is revealed! And apparently by morning, six of them had disappeared from the city of London. <laughs> but these um, teachers of the law are so pleased with their trap, self-congratulatory, and so in verse 7, they keep questioning him. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her after badgering him and appreciate the theater of this imagine if you were watching he quietly straightens up looks at them in the eye and says let him who is innocent throw the first stone that phrase has passed into our english language hasn't it we use it often you know Commentators are divided over what Jesus was writing in the sand. He writes twice in the sand, verse 6 and verse 8. We're not, we're not told, so you can only make an, an intelligent guess. Some commentators say it's provocative that he was writing with his finger. Maybe he was writing the Ten Commandments, for the Ten Commandments are written by the finger of God. Somebody else said, well, perhaps he was actually writing a list of the sins of the people who were speaking to him. Whatever the answer, in the silence, Jesus is saying, you are unworthy to sit in judgment of this woman. Only the sinless has the right to sit in judgment over those who are sinners. The words that Jesus uses, if you are without sin, literally is, let the unsinful one pick up the first stone. Is that you? And you can see the irony. How, how can these men, looking for a reason to catch Jesus so that they can murderously hand him over to the authorities, how can they have any right to judge an adulteress? Their motive is murder, another one of the Ten Commandments. In Deuteronomy 17, the witnesses of adultery have to be the first to stone the adulterous couple. If that's the law of Moses, then let it stand. Throw the stone. If you are without sin, are you able to be her executioner? One commentator said he sent their minds home to consider their private lives. Good way of putting it, huh? And I wonder if I can do that now with you. Can I send your minds home to consider your private life? And can I remind you that you're not better than anybody? And let's be warned as we see how Jesus deals with hypocrisy, for he shines a light on our own failings. In Jesus' words in verse 7 is revealed the great truth that no one who sins is fit to pronounce moral judgment on another. 
I wonder if you think the Christian church needs to hear this message today. For in my experience, Christians can sometimes be prone to hypocrisy. They can be prone to viewing themselves as higher or better than non-Christians or people caught up in particular sin or lifestyles. And haven't you, like me, I'm sure, heard the comment, you know, so often from our non-Christian friends and loved ones that the church is full of hypocrites? And of course it's an overstatement and it's a caricature, but there's also truth in it, isn't there? And we need to own that. My standard answer to them always is, no, there's plenty room for more. But there is truth in it. And there will always be truth in it. We will always be hypocritical because we are sinners struggling to live in line with what we say we believe. And so we need to be very slow to pronounce judgment. Now, I want to show you something. This is a little bit of a sidebar. But I want to show you this verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because we mustn't overstate this. In our world... Judging another is really the unforgivable sin. But actually, I want you to see how balanced this is in the New Testament. So let's have a look at 1 Corinthians 5. Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Now, let me just say to you very quickly, I don't want to spend too much time on this verse. This verse is in the context of a gross sexual sin in the church in Corinth. You can go and read it on your own time. There's incest taking place in the church of Corinth, and the church has not done anything about it. And so Paul is writing to rebuke them. And he's saying, stop sitting in judgment of those who are non-Christians. Judge your own. Why are you letting it go, sweeping it under the carpet? You ought to stand against it. Leave the pagans to God. He'll judge them. So Christians are not never to judge. I just That's the point I'm trying to make. We are to hold each other accountable as Christians. And we are to leave those who are non-Christians to God. He will be the one who judges them. And I wonder if we got that distinction whether um, that objection would be so often heard that the church is full of hypocrites. But let me ask you, and all of us this morning, who do you feel morally superior to? I would suggest that we'll be much more tolerant and compassionate of sinful people and moral failures if we are mindful of our own moral state before God. Are you ashamed of the dark rooms in your life? How easily we forget that we are also sinners deserving of judgment. And so Jesus deals with the hypocrites, but secondly, he deals with the victim of religious hypocrisy. He deals with shame. Again, in verse 8, he stoops down and draws on the ground. Um, Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and he's waiting for them to answer He's waiting for their reply. They are now in his trap. 
the shoe is on the other foot. They, they were so proud of themselves for thinking up a scheme where they could put Jesus in a corner, but they didn't even see it coming. And what happens in verse 9? Verse 9 is priceless, isn't it? At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. Notice the older ones first. I wonder why the older ones went first. Is it because they have had more time to sin more, so their list is longer than everybody else's? Or maybe it's because they've got a little bit more wisdom than the young ones. I don't know. Turns out that these old religious hypocrites are also full of shame as they peel away from the crowd and disappear. They've been outmaneuvered. In one sentence, those who stood in judgment of the moral failure of this woman, and worse, those who stood in judgment of Jesus, well, they judged by their own consciences. He's exposed their hypocrisy. The self-righteous are very quick to condemn another, and so they leave self-condemned by conscience. Jesus really does level the playing fields. Whenever we encounter Christ, whenever the light shines, we are convicted, are we not, of how far short we fall of his standard of perfection and realize that we are unacceptable. But what are we going to do about it? What do we do about our shame, our unacceptability? That really is the crucial question. And what we do really is the key to freedom. So I guess the response of the religious is a very common response for dealing with shame. Get more religious. Do more things. Get busy at church. Disappear into deeper hypocrisy. Like Eve, cover up. Pretend everything's good. Put on your church face. Push away Jesus. Suppress your guilt. But actually verse 10 and 11 show us a much better alternative. Look at what it says. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Can you just hear, can you drink that water this morning? Neither do I condemn you. Let's drink deeply from that fountain of life. That can be yours this morning. He looks her in the eye. Where is everybody? Where is the condemnation? They've gone. Neither do I condemn you. And friends, that is what Jesus says to you this morning. It's what he says to me. It's what he says to those who are guilty of sexual sin and all other kinds of sin. She is in the presence of the only person who could throw the stone, for he's the only sinless one. And instead of throwing the stone, though he had every right, she hears the best words anyone in her situation can hear. Neither do I condemn you. Do you need to hear those words this morning again? I do. I know them. I love them. I believe them. But I let go of them often. 
because I'm aware of my sin. And I need to read John 8 often, weekly, daily, I need to remember these words. Neither do I condemn you. Guilt is real. Shame is real. We feel guilty because we are guilty. We feel shame because what we have done is shameful. The answer of our, of our world is you need to go to therapy and learn to forgive yourself. And there's truth in that. You do need to get over your sin. But it can't only be that. It's got to be hearing from somebody outside of us who knows everything that we've done, who's bigger than us, who is sinless. We've got to hear from that person declaring us to be not condemned. And only then will we be free. Free from guilt and shame. When the one who has seen everything you've ever done says, neither do I condemn you. Why is it possible for Jesus to say that? It is because the message of John's Gospel is that Jesus came to put himself between that woman and those who wanted to stone her. That is, on the cross, Jesus died at the hands of the religious hypocrites in the name of Moses, by the way. publicly humiliated like this woman, dragged half-naked in front of the crowd like this woman, and, so to speak, stoned, though worse, crucified. And in doing that, he took the condemnation due to the woman and due to you and to me onto himself. And because of that, he can look at us and say, neither do I condemn you. Have you drunk from that fountain? Have you heard those words? Have you put your trust in that man? Notice what he says to her as we close. Go now and leave your life of sin. For that is the only appropriate response to those who deserve condemnation but are spared condemnation. Bruce Milne says to receive the Lord's mercy means living from now for the Lord's glory. Are you crippled by shame? Come to Jesus for mercy. Have your head lifted up. Forgiven. Now, go and sin no more. I thought it would be right. I asked um, Ivan, who very graciously agreed, to let me do the confession this morning. And I thought it would be right. It's right for us to do the confession after this sermon, don't you think? And so I want you to stand with me now. And after the confession is said, you'll remain standing as we sing our final song. But let's confess our sins. This confession is based on Psalm 51. It's the psalm that David wrote after adultery with Bathsheba. It's the sexual sinner's confession. It's the moral failure's confession. That includes me and it includes you. And so let's confess our sins to Almighty God together.
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Father, how grateful we are to you that we can hear those words again, neither do I condemn you. Thank you that because of the death of Jesus, we can have our shame and guilt removed, we can have our hypocrisy forgiven. And we pray that you would help us to go on and live lives of sacrifice to you in response to all that you have done because of your Son, our Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.